Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 168 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I am so very excited about this week's guest. John Ortberg is somebody that has influenced my life for decades, literally since the 90s, as a leader and, and also just as a Christ follower. I mean, his writings and ministry have been very influential. And in the last month, I've had some time to hang out with him. My wife and I flew down and got to spend a day with him and a handful of other people in Menlo Park, California, and then uh, saw him again recently at another event and then got to interview him for this podcast. And this is like this is good soul food. You're going you're gonna to love this week. If you don't know John, you're in for a real treat. He was a teaching pastor at Willow Creek and uh, more recently over the last number of years has done a phenomenal job really transforming Menlo Park Presbyterian Church into what it is today, Menlo Church. And they're reaching lots of people in Silicon Valley. It become a multi-site church. And John is just a just a good soul and a really sharp mind and an even better heart and uh, was really good friends with Dallas Willard, which is very intriguing to me. And so I think you're really going to benefit from this. And I think your soul is going to be better as a result of tuning in today. And also, hey, I want to let you know, we are at a very exciting point in this podcast history. We are just about to hit 5 million downloads. And you know what that triggers? I gave you a heads up last week. That triggers the biggest giveaway in the history of this podcast. And so stay tuned in just a moment for details on that because that, that's going to be pretty incredible. In the meantime, here's a question for you. What are you doing to get your volunteers ready for the new year ahead? And even for that matter, for, for Christmas? I mean, a lot of you, you have great intentions, but Ministry Grid last year helped 400,000 leaders get training. I mean, you think about that. That's huge. And they got a brand new app, brand new website. They completely redid that. And they now have 750 courses that you can choose from. And everything is customizable. Uh, for your church, you, you can get like, you know, things just done out of the box. Or for your church, you can add videos of your own PDFs, YouTube videos, other content you'd like. And they have a very special offer that's kind of going away at the end of the year until December 31st. If you, if you act before December 31st, you'll get a free first-time guest training video, and that's available for all your volunteers if you activate by December 31st. So you can join the 400,000 other leaders who found training on Ministry Grid last year. Just go to lifeway.com slash ministry grid. That's lifeway.com slash ministry grid, and make sure you don't miss out on this offer. And speaking of missing out, next week is a huge week in the history of our podcast because that is when we kick off the 5 million download giveaway. All right, so I guess I'll spill the beans. Guess guess what we're doing. You can't win right now. There's nothing you do right now. But next week, starting next Tuesday, here, here's what, what's going to happen. We're going to give away uh, some Starbucks and we're going to give away some Dunkin' Donuts because last time we gave away Starbucks, some of you were like, hey, 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 we don't have a Starbucks near us. Okay, so uh, we're going to give away the most we have ever given away on my social channels, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook for Starbucks and, and Dunkin' Donuts, and there'll be hundreds of winners. So I hope we're able to buy you your coffee. Uh, starting December 5th through December 12th, that's what we want to do. You're like, great, Carrie, but you've done that before. And I know, I know, I know, that's not the grand prize. It's a good prize, but it's not the grand prize. So what is the grand prize? I'm so excited about this because I've had so many conversations with so many of you 
about this one thing that I thought, you know what, I'm just going to I'm just going to give one away to celebrate because you are the awesome people who brought this podcast to 5 million downloads. So you get to benefit. So you know what we're giving away? Here you go. An extra large big green egg delivered to you. Yeah. And I know some of you are like, what, what, what? Some of you are like, what, what is that? If you don't know what that is, enjoy the Starbucks. If you do, you will realize what a treasure this thing is. It's, it's a smoker. It's a barbecue. It's my favorite thing. If you follow me on social, you know I'm obsessed with it. And I've talked to so many of you who are like, I would love one, but we don't have the money. Or, you know, I can't talk the person I'm married to into it. So I'm just going to give you one. And then there's no argument. An extra large, not even like a mini one that, you know, you can barely cook a hamburger on. This is an extra large. You can feed your entire family at Thanksgiving or Christmas with it. It's huge. And we'll deliver it to you anywhere in North America. So that is the grand prize. And it comes with something else. I'm going to actually fly to your town and hang out with you for half a day. So uh, I'm going to come build into your team, build into you as a leader. I can do some live training for your team. You decide, staff, elders, volunteers, whatever you want. Uh, so it's a big green egg and and me. And maybe we'll have a burger or something like that. So that is the giveaway. Uh, next week, we'll share with you how to win. But the contest opens next week. So do not miss next week's episode. And uh, I just wanted to let you know that. We just think you guys are awesome. And so that is the contest that opens next week, That which, by the way, if you're listening out of sequence, is Tuesday, December 5th, 2017. So it's going to be great. In the meantime, speaking of great, man, I love this guy. He is just uh, even more awesome in person than you would think he would be. And you would think he's pretty awesome if you know his ministry. Here's my conversation with John Ortberg. John, welcome to the podcast. It's really, really great to have you. Gary, it's wonderful to be here. I only wish I could be in Canada instead of California right at the moment. And I probably wish I could be in California rather than in Canada. So there you go. Actually, we, we should have done this in person. I think I'm going to be down the road from you in San Jose in a couple of days. But you know how this works, right? With schedules and everything. Uh, yeah, come out anytime. I think it's a lot more likely that you'll come to California than I'll come to Canada in the near future. <laughs> Sometimes it works that way, doesn't it? Um, John, you know, we've had the privilege of chatting a bit online and then we got to spend a day together recently in California. Um, and there are so many directions I could take this conversation because you're somebody I've, I've listened to and followed literally for a couple of decades. I think probably since the late 1990s through the Global Leadership Summit, I first heard about you and your work at Willow and it's just been great. So we could talk about, um, you know, your writing and thinking, which has been just a significant influence for me and, and for a lot of others. Uh, your leadership in the local church, which is actually fairly extraordinary and not an often told part of the story. I'm fascinated by your deep friendship with Dallas Willard. And then uh, you also speak into the state of soul care among church leaders and, and pastors and and even, you know, the way we relate to each other. So Thought maybe, you know, we'll see how much we can get to in this interview, but I thought we'd start with your latest project, which is a book, a really good book. Um, it's called I'd Like You More If You Were More Like Me, which is just actually true, isn't it? <laughs> I, have a, I have a very good friend that uh, I went through Fuller with in the School of Psychology, and he's a therapist, and he says actually that um, differences are the number one barrier to intimacy or relational connection in life. And that's a lot of where the title comes from that, you know, a, a lot of times we're drawn to people because they're different than us. And that kind of fascinates us. And we know we need some of what they have, 
But then when we get into the relationship, it's precisely those differences that make us feel like, God, that person is so weird. Why can't they just be normal like I am? So we're going to start with marriage therapy. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, that's, that's always a good place to start. Opposites attract, right? I mean, isn't that the story of most marriages? It's like, wow, she's so amazing or he's so great and they are different. We marry our opposites. But then it's those things that often we spend a lot of time trying to navigate. True? It's just really interesting. Uh, one of the guys on the faculty when I was going through Fuller was a guy named Neil Warren, who ended up starting eHarmony. Oh, wow. And, uh, <laughs> Neil has done a ton of research on uh, marriage and uh, what makes a marriage work. And he said there's always that kind of debate between is it birds of a feather flock together or is it opposites attract? And then in this case, the research is very, very clear. Every similarity is money in the bank. Uh, really? and, uh, in fact, uh, this is so true that, uh, literally if you are more than one standard deviation different from the other person in IQ, if there's a greater than 15 point IQ difference, a couple is more likely to get divorced. Oh, and wow. So, um, differences while they are a part of what makes for chemistry and, and, uh, creates this sense of mystery and we're often drawn to, uh, they are unquestionably a challenge when it comes to navigating a relationship and especially marriage. Isn't that fascinating? So yeah. the things that attract you eventually repel you? Is is that kind of the idea? Uh, they become, they become uh, challenges that you're going to have to figure out how to deal with in the relationship because... Uh, like in my marriage with Nancy, uh, I'm an introvert. Uh, I like um, alone time. I like to focus. I like to be undistracted. Nancy is a raving extrovert. She has never had an unexpressed thought or feeling. And uh, I think that sense of freedom in her spirit and looseness is something that I really was drawn to. And probably at some level, I knew I need more of this. This would be really good for me. But man, can it get irritating after a while. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure your introversion, I mean, you write about that in the book, too, and in other books, your introversion kind of shuts her down, too, right? It frustrates her. I can't imagine that it would, <laughs> um, because it seems like such a Jesus-like quality to me to love solitude and quiet. Uh, but in fact, I have it on good authority from her and other people who know me that it is a pretty irritating part about who I am. Can uh -huh. they? Yeah. So walk us through a dynamic, like what would, I mean, you do this in the book and you, you've talked about it publicly, but like what, what would be a, a typical uh, oh, scenario? So this actually happened just a couple weeks ago. I tell other stories about it in the book, but we were uh, sitting at a table together and uh, I was working on a project and Nancy was um, reading a book. I think it's called Deep Work or something like that. And it's about oh, yeah. the power of uh, uninterrupted focus. And so I'm hoping to just get lots of stuff cranked out. So I'm kind of in the zone and uh, she reads and after about five minutes, she says, oh, you got to listen to this about how great it is to not be interrupted. <laughs> okay, that's good. Then about two minutes later, oh, man, just listen to how much you can accomplish if you could just focus without having anybody interrupt you. So eventually, you know, my response is just if you think it's so great to not be interrupted, why don't you try not interrupting me for five minutes and let's see how that goes. <laughs> And, and this uh, is and this did. is after how many years of marriage, John? <laughs> yeah, yeah, amazingly, uh, coming up on thirty-five. Wow. Yeah, and and you know the wonderful thing is, uh, after a while, if you're able to identify these differences and accept them, 
they can actually become uh, sources of, of humor and joy and you can laugh at them. One of the hard parts for me, Carrie, was uh, uh, when we first got married, uh, I believed that I was an extrovert because I kind of grew up with the idea that extroverts were good, they were successful, they were strong, they were charismatic. Introverts are bad, they're not socially skilled, they're weaker, they're more needy. And so, of course, I had to be an extrovert. Yeah. And so when we got married, I actually believed I was an extrovert. And I think the biggest barrier for me wasn't accepting the fact that Nancy was extroverted. It was accepting the fact that I'm not. Because and it felt like a demotion to you or an admission of weakness or something? A great way of saying it. Absolutely. I had an emotional need to see myself as other than what I was. Isn't that interesting? You know, I, I think when it comes to I'd like you more if you were more like me, uh, at the core of that inability to accept differences often is the inability to actually accept and embrace who it is that God made me to be. And once I can accept that, then I can be free to look at you and think what a wonderful, marvelous idea God had when he created Carrie. But I can't do that uh, if I have not uh, allowed myself to accept and embrace the person God made me to be. Otherwise, those differences in you will threaten me. Why do you think it's so hard for so many? Because you're already hitting on on a core issue, I know, in, in, in the leaders who are listening. A lot of us really do have difficulty accepting ourselves, don't we? Why is that and how does that manifest itself? You know, I, I think for me and probably for a lot of us, way, way, way down at the core is um, I have not actually surrendered my life and particularly the burden of outcomes uh, to Jesus. Mm. And so I'm living with uh, the weight of the world on my shoulders, kind of like Atlas in that old story. Yeah. Because I have to be the person who is successful or is admired or who other people are following or who looks like a leader or whatever that is. And it's it's just this great irony that I keep running back to at deeper and deeper levels as I go along through life that the only real way to freedom is is death to self so that uh, – you know, it sounds like such a terrible thing, death to self, and in some ways it is, and it can be really painful. And yet, paradoxically, uh, once I say, I don't have to achieve anything, I don't have to do anything, I don't have to appear anyway, all of that has been settled by the fact that God loves me, um, then there can be a lightness and a freedom to life. And, and uh, Dallas used to talk about living life kind of like that old game of tag where nobody wants to be it, everybody yeah. says it. And if you just say, okay, Jesus, you're it. Um, mm. The weight of outcomes is on you. The pressure of making things turn out is on you. I am not it. And uh, if I just keep, you know, remembering through a day to tag Jesus and say, you're it, you're it, you're it, not me, then I can live with that kind of lightness. But uh, all of my wiring runs the other way. You made a really interesting connection. It almost feels like a like a juxtaposition because you said in almost the same breath, self-acceptance, accepting who you are, but then also death to self. Yeah. How, how are those two related? Yeah. Uh, you know, often that idea of death to self is misunderstood. Right. Uh, as though it's a bad thing to have a self. 
And it's real important to remember that actually it's a wonderful thing to have a self and it's a wonderful thing that you have yourself. And we all kind of know this when we look at each other. What a what a much better world it is because Carrie is in it than if Carrie was not in it. And I think about times that I just get to listen to you or I was telling you when I gave to all the elders at our church a book that you wrote about change management and Moses and it was wonderful and had such a great way of talking about stuff. And what a good thing that those thoughts came into the world through you and what a better world it is because you're in it than it would be if you were not. So uh, to have a self is wonderful. To be yourself is wonderful. Um, death to self is always death to a lesser ignoble self so that a greater, better self might come to life. Mm. And really, it's simply saying, um, I no longer have to be attached to my desires. You know, it's really interesting because self-perception's at the heart of this, John. And when we met in person for the first time, you know, other than shaking your hand at Global Leadership Summit 15 years ago, which I'm sure was a, a life highlight for you, um, <laughs> was uh, when you came out to say hello and you told me about, you know, the fact that you had not only read Leading Change Without Losing It, um, but had shared it with your elders and, and used it to navigate some of the issues that you were facing at Menlo, what was then Menlo Park Presbyterian Church as you transitioned to traditional church through change, which I hope we get to, and if not, next round on this podcast. But, you know, it was so humbling for me, first of all, that you would read something I wrote just blew me away and share it with your elders. But, you know, interestingly enough, often we think what we do is not very significant. Of all the things I've written, of all the books I've written, that's that's the one that sold the least. And I believe in it, and I still teach on it and everything. Uh, but sometimes we just get obsessed with numbers or growth or whatever, and then you realize, no, God, you really use that in a, in a powerful way. So it was it was a it was a really rich and beautiful moment for me uh, to discover that as well, and I think there's a leadership lesson in there in there too. Do you think leaders struggle with self acceptance more because you've also touched on uh, the fact that we chase things and we're in leadership and we're in the arena and we're looking for um, affirmation or, or or that kind of thing? Does it get uh, just naturally a little more? toxic in leadership if you're not careful, John? Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, one of the reasons uh, that I wrote this book is I hope especially people who are involved in leadership will read it. Uh, folks who do research in this kind of field will say the number one predictor of whether or not, for instance, if somebody's in the field of pastoral leadership, church leadership, the number one uh, predictor of whether or not it'll be sustainable is do they have a fully disclosing friend? Mm. Do they have another person uh, with whom they can share all of their secrets, talk about their struggles, talk about their temptations? You know, the reality is that leadership is really a form of servanthood. Yeah. Um, if I'm leading an organization and I understand that rightly, I'm seeking to serve the people that I lead. And I cannot lead people effectively un unless I'm free of the need for their approval. Mm. The book is a lot about intimacy, right? And about intimacy yeah. with God, getting close with others. Why do, I mean, you've been a pastor for decades. Why do you think pastors struggle with that so much, church leaders? Um, I think a lot of us are not taught about how to experience intimacy. Mm. And um, really the, the, the core moment that kind of led to the writing of the book for me was 
one time when I was listening to Dallas Willard talk and he was saying um, uh, that, that basically, if you think about your life, mostly you are uh, a ceaseless flow of conscious experience. Okay. Way more than you're just your body or flesh and blood. Uh, we have this conversation. That's an experience or you see a sunrise or uh, you climb a mountain or you listen to a great piece of music. Mostly your life consists of this unending flow of conscious experience. And then he said, intimacy is shared experience. Intimacy is shared experience. And all of a sudden it felt like that opened up a window to that word intimacy, which had always been kind of fuzzy for me. And I think a lot of times, especially leaders that have a really high drive will think of intimacy as something that's for touchy-feely people, or yeah. it's about these real deep, emotional, dramatic moments, or it's just about sexuality. And and so to recognize now, it really is, uh, has a quite a clear definition. It is um, shared experience. And what that means then is anybody can learn how to grow in intimacy as we uh, offer to share our experiences with other people. I think paradoxically, leaders often, because we feel like we've got to produce, uh, what we accomplish has to be measured, it has to look good. We actually devalue our own experience of life together with God on earth. And then we often don't learn or don't value just the simplicity of sharing experience with another person. That That's not something that feels impressive on the resume or the list of things I've done today. You know, I think uh, that resonated with me so much when I read the book that uh, intimacy is shared experiences. That's probably one of my, my top takeaways. And when I thought about my life, you kind of look back, you go, well, of course, because... Yeah. It tends to be like if you think even in a staff context, let's take this very, you know, leadership focused. Um, often if you've gone on a trip or gone to a conference with somebody or even, you know, sometimes to save money at our church, we'll, we'll share hotel rooms and that kind of thing. And those are always the shared meal, the shared experience, the uh, travel together, the we almost missed our flight experiences mm -hmm. or, or friends you vacation with. Or people that you don't just sit around in the living room with, but you do something with. You go for a hike. You you head out on the water for a day. You, um, you know, do a bike race together. Those those seem to be the most intimate relationships over over time. Is that what you're driving at? Uh, when people get to the end of their lives, uh, those are the moments that they remember. Those are the moments that they treasure with people they love the most, with their family and with their friends. Uh, when people die and there's a memorial service, those are the moments that we talk about, those yeah. shared moments that we have with each other. That was what Jesus was the master of. Mostly, when you think about it, discipleship was simply about um, shared experiences with Jesus, where Jesus would be talking and they would be learning together from him. Um, and yeah, it's this odd uh, dynamic in life where the things that we share the most, I think it's part of the way the evil one works, that the things that we will treasure the most are the things that we're tempted to devalue and demean, especially as leaders. Yeah. And the, um, the trophies that we can just run after end up just sitting on a shelf tarnishing. You know, my wife has always been better at this, John, than I have. And she'd said for years, hey, we need shared experiences, traditions as a family and, uh, you yeah. know. I, I was never fully as committed. And looking back on it, I'm like, man, she was, again, right. 
It's irritating, isn't it? <laughs> it's very irritating. It's like, why is she always right? Yeah. Um, last night we were talking about how what temperature you should freeze food at. And uh, I thought it was okay to freeze it at like, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know, Fahrenheit anymore, but, you know, minus five, minus 10 Celsius. And of course, it needs to be minus 21. So my answer was accurate um, up to the Great Depression. I was quite scientifically accurate. <laughs> And then over the last 80 years, science has proved her right. But I'm, I'm sticking with my ancient interpretation, personally, yeah. John. No, you know, uh, do you think it's possible to have an intimate relationship with God if you don't actually have a truly intimate relationship with people? Are the two connected? I, I think the two are connected. I, I think there are some people who are, it, it's a little bit like music or athletics. There, there are some people that have a natural predisposition to be really good at it. And uh, I, I think uh, one of the things I get into in the book is there's a, a researcher named John Gottman. He's kind of the number one guru on marriage in our days. Right. And he talks a lot about uh, what he calls bids for intimacy or bids for connection, that in a relationship with other people, uh, folks are constantly saying things like, have you had coffee yet? Or uh, did you read this book? Or have you seen that movie? And, and what's underneath those is they're actually saying, would you like to connect? And, and I know of some people in my life who just have a natural ability to recognize those bids and respond to them with great skill. And so they tend to have more intimacy. And there's other people whose heart may be really good, but they struggle much more. They just have kind of a tin ear when it comes to that. And uh, it can be learned, but they're never as good at it. I, I do think, Carrie, that uh, there's something about God where even people who are not naturally good at human intimacy may be able to learn how to share their experiences with God in deep, rich, and wonderful ways. Mm -hmm. so oh, that's I, good to I think, know. I think it's kind of both. And I think as we get better, we all want to get better at experiencing intimacy with people and God calls us to that. So as we strive to get better at that, I think that does draw us closer to God. I think often God speaks to us through other people. So I think there is a dimension in which that's true. But I'd want to say to anybody who's listening that finds that they they're on that side where human intimacy is more of a struggle for them. Uh, I think uh, even people who are someplace on that spectrum where learning to be intimate with other people will always be hard for them, they can find when they are in nature, when they're engaged in a task, um, when they're learning mathematics, if that's what they love to do, they can recognize that God is present and share that moment with them. And I do think there's a deep way in which intimacy with God is available to every human being um, whatever their natural skill set is for human intimacy. So if people are saying, how do, like, they kind of know that they don't feel very close to God. And, yeah. you know, when I look back on my life, I've gotten a lot better over the years of picking up on those cues. I never really understood them in my 20s and 30s. And now I'm like, yeah. oh, that's what's going on. Like, I'm, I'm just, I'm not that bright. Um, but you learn, you're right, it is a learnable skill. So what are some things, uh, some essential ingredients for intimacy? It's like if you focus on these handful of things, you mm -hmm. are going to have more intimate relationships. What, what would you say, John? Uh, with other people? Yeah, let's start there, with other people, sure. Well, the first one is, um, do I actually want to have more intimate relationships with other people? <laughs> that is so honest, because you know what? I bet you if a lot of leaders... 
answer that honestly they're like nah, i don't yeah and 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 i have known leaders where uh it, it doesn't even take much reflection they're pretty straightforward about the fact that i don't want to <laughs> it's like nope i don't want that i got enough people in my life yeah. i got enough issues i don't have time for intimacy oh that's fair call it out yeah yeah relationships are messy relationships are time consuming relationships require energy um, relationships may make you feel less productive. Relationships will require vulnerability. Uh, so being really honest about that uh, is a real important way to start. And sometimes people who are leaders, you know, there's a, uh, uh, I get into this in the book a little bit. Uh, there's a guy named Ed Hallowell who writes about how uh, in every human life, we want achievement and we want connection. Mm. Um, <laughs> and both are good things. But I've never known somebody who achieved greatly and had no connection that lived a really good life. Yeah. And I've never known somebody who had great connections with other people, even if they didn't appear to achieve much, that had a bad life. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, for anybody, for any leader who's really trying to lead, to just step back and say, do I really want to have intimacy with other people? Uh, I, I think that's the first place to start. Um and if I don't, to ask, why is it that I don't? And what might need the change for me to genuinely want that? And God, could you help me to desire intimacy at a deeper level? I think anybody who doesn't have it, um, they're running on fumes. And in some ways, our experience of joy and delight in life is going to be impoverished because we were made, we were hatched to attach. We're yeah. made to be connected with other people. And uh, there's always woundedness if that's not going on. And then and then if people are really serious about intimacy, I, I would say the next place to start, and this is kind of the good news that it can be learned, is to go through a day, and you can actually keep score if you're a scorekeeper person. Uh, just notice uh, in comments that other people make, in emails that they send and so on, um, uh, where has somebody made a bid to connect with you? What happens for a lot of people is those bids come, you know, somebody just stops by the office and, and asks, did you see the game last night? Well, that's a little bid for connection. But if I'm just in blinders mode where I'm trying to crank stuff out, I will treat it solely as a piece of information. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Who has done for game? Come on. Yeah. Uh, 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 and and anytime a bid for connection comes up, uh, Gottman says you can respond in one of three ways. You can reject it, just no. You can ignore it, uh, or you can accept it. And to learn to recognize those little bids for connection, and then to uh, learn to get better at accepting them, and especially in our families, and especially in our marriages. For anybody who's married, what's really interesting is. Intimacy in marriage is not primarily about conflict resolution. That's actually not the best way to build a great marriage to get really good at conflict resolution. It can help, Hmm. but the the fundamental way is not getting better at resolving conflict. It's getting better at recognizing, giving, and responding to bids of intimacy. And when you learn to do that uh, from one moment to the next, from one day to the next, that's actually... Uh, skill at recognizing, giving, and responding to bids for intimacy is the fundamental building block for intimacy, especially in marriage. No, that's good counsel. And I mean, I certainly resonate with that in terms of, you know, marriage and even the relationship with your kids, because eventually they grow up and all you have left is, you know, at this stage in life, and as I'm learning at this stage in life, 
All you have left is relationship, John. That's it. But let me, you're a busy guy, all right? You lead a, a growing multi-campus, six, seven location church. You write books, you speak. I mean, you, you've, you've got a jam, as jammed a schedule as anybody listening to this podcast. And I think we've all been there when somebody knocks on your door at Menlo Church and goes, hey, John, do you see the game? And you're like, oh, I'm trying to write my message. Like, how do you, I think a lot of leaders, there are thousands of leaders listening to this who are like, I have too many of those bids. Help me out here. What do, what do I do? Yeah. Um, well, the you know many many years ago when I was talking about church ministry, we'd moved to Chicago. It was really uh, exciting days at uh, this church, Willow Creek, where we were back there. And I was talking to Dallas Willard about my life and uh, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy. And then he said this sentence that has been with me now for a couple of decades: uh, "You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life." Yeah. And uh, uh, I actually have in my office uh, a little uh, piece on hurry that Dallas wrote that was on his refrigerator. And after he died, his wife, Jane, shared it with a few of us where he writes about hurry. And in typical fashion with Dallas, he very carefully defines um, what hurry is and that hurry is is primarily not just a condition of my outward body. It's not just having many things to do. It's a condition of my inner spirit where I'm so preoccupied with myself and my agenda that I have no space to just be present to God and present to the people in my life. And um, so to cultivate that, to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from my life, and to be available to God from one moment to the next and say, I will just receive this moment as manna from you. And um, I will trust you with outcomes. And uh, I, I will not live under the crushing burden of all these things that I have to do as if the world depended on uh, my productivity. And I find at least for myself, Carrie, Almost always when there's um, this kind of hurry, uh, it, 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 it includes a burdened sense of preoccupation. Mm. And then a little bit underneath that will be self-pity and martyrdom. Poor me because I have so much to do. <laughs> uh, and then under that will be ego and selfishness, and I must be successful and look impressive to get other people to applaud. So it's really a whole system, a whole way of life um, that I have to learn to let go of and die to so that I actually can be fully present. And it certainly doesn't mean that I always have to be interrupted by anybody, but it does mean if I'm living with a chronic sense of irritation or hurried preoccupation, uh, I, I am not living in that one day at a time manna from heaven mode that makes life enjoyable. Mm. You know what, I, John, that's beautifully said. And I could go back and say, okay, what does that actually mean for a, you know, a hurried Tuesday or a frantic Friday? But you know what? I, I mean, it, I think you've been on a journey. I've certainly been on a journey. 10, 15 years ago, I wouldn't have wanted, I would have wanted to know the quick answer to that question. Uh, but I think you unpack so much. You should just hit the uh, back 30 second button a couple times and listen to what John just shared from his life and from Dallas's. 
And I think if you're just willing to live in the uncomfortableness of that teaching, you'll eventually figure out what you should focus on and what you shouldn't and how you should respond when somebody asks you, hey, did you see the game last night? Um, can we can we talk about your friendship with Dallas? Because you you shared a couple of things when we were together that day on the porch talking about your friendship with Dallas, and uh, I remember him. You you described how he was like a lot of us just know him through his writings, and we're so thankful for you because you you actually share a lot of his ideas in ways that we can more easily dissect, which I'm so grateful as well as your own. Um, but you described his, I'm going to use a Old Testament term, countenance, his just his <clears throat> his personality, and yeah. it was it was fascinating. So tell us about what Dallas was like, because you knew him for two or three decades, didn't you? Yeah, for uh, any of our listeners who who uh, will not know him, Dallas Willard was um, for many many decades. Uh, he taught philosophy at the University of Southern California, uh, and he was probably the smartest guy I have ever known. Mm. Um, I, I used to joke with him. I would never get into an argument with Dallas or else he would prove that I didn't exist. <laughs> um, and he had uh, literally read, you know, from Homer on uh, just about everything of significance about the human condition. Wow. And uh, and then worked very hard to just distill what did this writer mean and did Dallas think this was right or wrong? And uh, that's why for anybody who tries to read his books, he doesn't use technical vocabulary. I mean, he, his words uh, are, are are straightforward, but there's a density to his sentences. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, because it's like every one of them is an iceberg. You know, there's just a whole body of great human thought underneath them. And uh, uh, he always knows precisely what he means by words. Spirit is disembodied personal power. Joy is a pervasive sense of well-being. A disciple is somebody whose ultimate goal is to live the way that Jesus would if he was in your place. Words that lots of us throw around vaguely. Dallas was not vague about it all. And so when I began to read him, uh, it kindled a great hope in me. I felt like uh, this is somebody who has really thought it through and understood much more about God and faith and life change than I did. And uh, so I wrote to him after I had read his book, Spirit of the Disciplines, and it just impacted me so deeply. And it turned out that he lived just a few miles away from where I was. I was living then in Simi Valley, California, yeah. lived in Box Canyon. So he invited me to come to his house. And uh, I, I did. And it was this little white picket fence. And the house was like a reproduction of very rural Missouri where Dallas had grown up mm. uh, in Southern California. And the really striking thing about Dallas was the first time that I met with him, how absolutely unhurried he was. Yeah. And uh, this was back in the days of answering machines. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, we would talk and the phone might ring and he would just let it ring and keep talking to me as if he had nothing better to do than talk with whoever he was talking with. And somebody said about Dallas one time, I wish I lived in his time zone. Mm. Um because uh, it, it's like hurry was kind of not in his body. It, it just at the cellular level, um, he lived in the reality of the kingdom of God like nobody I had seen before. Sometimes you read somebody's writings 
And then when you meet them, they're kind of a disappointment. And with <laughs> Dallas, it was the other way around. It was like, wow, his writings influenced me more than anybody that I'd met. And then when I met him, it was like this man is more transformative in person than even his words of writing are. When you think about um, some of the key things that you you know, learned from Dallas, and I, I mean both academically, but I mean holistically in terms of yeah. the way you live your life, the your heart, your relationship with God. I mean, he he wrote a number of incredible books, Spirit of the Discipline, Renovation of the Heart, and, and many others. But um, what what are some of his enduring legacies? Because he died two years ago, three years ago, how, how maybe, maybe longer. Of 2013, yeah. Yeah, about four years ago. Wow. And I remember hearing about his death, and I was sad that day. I mean, it must have been devastating for you. When you talk about him, sometimes there are tears in your eyes, which is beautiful. And I thought, wow, the Christian world has lost today, you know, a, a major contributor um, so what, what are some of the core elements of Dallas's legacy in, in your life and in your leadership? I, I, I would say the primary one is this. I have a very difficult time thinking about any dimension of faith uh, without thinking thoughts of Dallas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, so, so I'll mention a few things quickly. Uh, I was talking with him about reading one time because I like to read and I'll often have a stack of books and articles and feel like, man, I got so much more I need to get through. And Dallas said, uh, when it comes to reading, aim at depth, not breadth. Mm-hmm. Because if you aim at depth, you will get breadth thrown in. But if you aim at breadth, you will get neither depth nor breadth. Wow. What he meant by that was take if you look at spiritual formation or you look at leadership if you get one person uh, who really helps you understand this craft or this field and you immerse yourself deeply in that person's thoughts, uh, because the human condition is a constant, um, th- there will be certain ideas that will you'll find in other writers. So with spiritual formation, why is confession important? Why is self-examination important? Why is solitude important? Or with leadership, why does vision matter? Uh, and if you go real deeply in one thinker that really helps you, uh, then when you read another thinker, you'll come to those same ideas and you'll immediately know, I understand what they're saying. But if you're always skimming on the surface, nothing ever really gets to you to transform your mind. Uh, and so one of the things that I do is I am constantly reading and rereading Dallas because he is so helpful to me. So it's not at all like I think, well, I've read that book and I'm done with it. Yeah. And uh, and I'm literally never not uh, reading again words that he said. Uh, and uh, what that means then is m- my mind internally in just its infrastructure has been shaped by his thoughts in ways that continually give gifts. So more than anybody else I've ever known in many, many ways, uh, Dallas is just not gone. Mm. You led us through, um, I guess, a meditation. I don't know what you want to call it, of the 23rd Psalm that yeah. um, was so rich. Uh, just if, if, if you could, in, in just a moment, I mean, I remember even the, the what kind of sheep lie down in green pastures. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you just tap into that stream for just a few minutes? I mean, if you want to take longer, go ahead. I, I yep. just, it, it, was, it was really impactful, kind of like, Wow, I really need to pay attention to this. 
yeah, again, something else that Dallas did was, uh, I, I think one of the reasons why he spoke to my faith so deeply is things that I always hoped were true about God or about life, Dallas simply saw as true. Uh, and and he recognized this is what the scriptures were saying, and it's real. So with the 23rd Psalm, you know, for a lot of us, those are just words that we might hear in a memorial service or seeing a plaque on a wall. Yeah. And uh, for him, they described reality the way that you or I might think the law of gravity does. And he starts with this notion, uh, the Lord is my shepherd. And what that means is uh, I am under the care of somebody else. Uh, I'm no longer under my own care. So I simply don't carry the weight of the world on my shoulder. It's all Jesus is it. That's what that means. And then um, I shall not want that is life without lack. Uh, I don't have to be lacking in anything. And this is where for leaders, the freedom to live in that reality. Uh, and the reason for it is in any moment, God is present and God's love is here and God's guidance is here. And I don't ever have to live in a single moment where the sufficiency of God isn't present and available and enough. So it is possible to live a life where I am no longer tormented by unsatisfied desires. Mm. And then that leads to those images of um, he leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down while, uh, you know, uh, you will only lie down in green pastures if you're full, you know, if, if you're still hungry, you got to be eating. And, uh, uh, by the still waters, if you're not thirsty, if you're not tormented by unsatisfied desires, uh, then you can be by the still waters, but you're not drinking because you're satisfied. Um, and, and then as you keep going through that Psalm, uh, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. And when Dallas was dying, one of the most remarkable statements that he made was, remember he said one time, you know, uh, I think when I die, it might be some time before I realize it's happened. I, that, that thought had never occurred to me. Oh, I, I, okay. I was like, oh, wow. In other words, the life that Christ had given him here was so rich that it's well, a continuum. Words, what, what, what know, was Jesus, he? What was he saying? Uh, Jesus said one time, uh, "Whoever trusts in me will never taste death." Mm. What does that mean? Not to taste death. What does that mean? Yeah. And Dallas would just think about this stuff and. You know, the idea is, if you think about it, not from the experience of looking at somebody who dies and their body is dead, but internally, um, again, you are a ceaseless flow of conscious experiences. That is your life. And that will just keep right on going. You mm -hmm. will not taste death. That flow of conscious experiences, thoughts and intentions and feelings well, just keep on going. So he was saying, you know, if that's going to keep going and I will not taste death, it will not be interrupted by the experience of death. It may be that that flow is going to keep going and it's going on for a while before I realize, hey, my body has died. <laughs> and uh, that thought had just never occurred to me. It, 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 you know, when he, he and he's facing death. So he's thinking about what's about to happen. Oh, 
man. But the reality of the presence of God and that statement of Jesus, whoever trusts me will not taste death, was so present before him that uh, uh, even the meaning of death, the prospect of death, looked different to him than it does to me. So think about, go back a couple of decades before you met Dallas. Yeah. And think about the trajectory of your leadership had you not yeah. run yes. into that oh, level of sure. thinking. It's so good, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then look at where you are today. Talk to us about the difference. Yeah, no, it's a what a great comment because, you know, for anybody who's a leader, here's the thing, you never know. You no. never know. You never know when you're going to read something, have a conversation, turn a corner, and all of a sudden the whole world opens up to you that you did not even know existed. Mm. And so for me, it really was just picking up that book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, and uh, reading. He, he, he says in there, his thesis is that authentic transformation really is possible if we're willing to do one thing, and that is to arrange our life around the activities that Jesus himself engaged in to constantly be at home with and receive power from his father. And when I read that sentence, it was like, oh my gosh, somebody has thought this stuff out. Yeah. And and it will be different people. It'll be different books. It will be different experiences. It will be different callings. But that was, I don't know that I've ever thought about it in this term, Kerry, but that was kind of a burning bush moment for me. Sure. And uh, really, uh, and it wasn't about Dallas. And Dallas would have been the first one to say sure. it's not about him. It's about spiritual reality and the goodness of God and the particular burning bush that comes to us will be different for each one of us, but it will come. And so for anybody who's listening to be uh, watching and waiting and learning and open, and you never know where or who or how or when that moment will come when God is calling you and saying, yep, this is uh, the field where I'm calling you now. Uh, to be devoted to me in your craft and your work. See, that's fascinating to me. So you think your legacy as a writer has an awful lot to do with with that moment and what followed? Or like, how is John, even as a person, as a Christ follower, as a leader, different? And let me let me just put it this way. When I when I was 24, I had uh, I was in law. I had a vision of myself twenty years in advance, and I was um, very successful, but morally bankrupt. And you know, I was a Christian, but I guess I had let things slide. And it was a vision. It was just one of those very rare. Haven't had a whole lot of supernatural experiences in my life, but that was one of them. And I know that the difference that Christ has made. I mean, I've been through ups and downs like everybody. But looking back on that moment, it's like, wow, thank God that could have been me. And I, I still fight that, that little bit of tension that's there. Sometimes it's greater every day. Was that a similar moment for you? Do you have like the, wow, I don't know who John would be today uh, or how, how you would be different? Um, I, I think for me... Uh, it, it was it was very continuous or, or congruent with life experience. So I've always been kind of intrigued by how do people change? Why do people change? Why is change so hard? Um, my dad 
says that this is true. I don't remember this, but he says, when I was two years old, we were on vacation someplace and that I said, you know, dad, people don't change because they don't want to change. So I think that was something I was always interested in. That's part of why I wanted to get a degree in psychology, but I was also interested in theology. Um, So I think it's, it's, uh, it was like all of those questions and all that stuff that was really of interest to me were, were in the mix. And I think for anybody that's listening to us, for you, when you were at that point, there was a whole slew of passions, interests, skills, um, aliveness inside you for this field. And then I think often there'll be an experience or a conversation or a book that has a way of catalyzing that, uh, creating a certain kind of crisis or energy uh, and a sense of calling emerges. And for sure for me, uh, that, uh, reading that book, uh, was that kind of moment. Um, and, and I can't imagine life if that gift had not come along mm. and, you know, I, I, God's always at work. And so I'm sure if it hadn't been that it would have been something else. And it's altogether possible that I missed other moments, other burning bushes that would have been absolutely wonderful. Uh, and for sure it, it doesn't, it didn't and doesn't create this romanticized experience where every morning I just get up and think, oh, work will be effortless and I will just experience one transcendent insight after another. Sometimes I think we can glamorize the whole idea of calling in ways that are are utterly untrue. There's a reason why they call work work. And um, mostly it is grinding it out, but it can be grinding it out together with God in a way that doesn't grind me down. Well, we'll have to do a part two, John, because this has been absolutely fascinating. I don't think we're going to dive into the whole church leadership aspect. So we'll save that, if you would, for round two. A couple of questions as we sort of wind down. One would be, um, just for pastors who are saying, and I mean, you've written on this, I've got soul work to do. I've got, you know, things are not great between me and God. Things are not great between... Um, you know, at home or, or in my friendships or wait a minute, I don't think I have any friendships, right? You've got, you've got leaders listening there who are like, yeah, that used to be part of who I am, but I've, I've, I've failed in that. Or, hey, that's never been who I am. And I, I realize what I'm missing. Any advice for them? Any thoughts that, that could help them take a step in the right direction? First thing I say is, um, Pray for God to bring a friend into your life uh, and don't be in a hurry on it, um, but uh, pray, ask God to give you that desire, um, ask God to uh, uh, raise your antenna and lift your radar, uh, write down a list of people where you think this person might be a good friend, that person might be a good friend. Um, devote some time, uh, invite folks out to have a cup of coffee or to go have lunch or to go on a walk or whatever, uh, and ask God to help you find a person who could be a good friend. Uh, there's an old thinker already who talked about the idea of soul friends. And he said, mm-hmm. soul friends is a person before whom you have no secrets. Wow. Uh, and, and so, uh, I, I would simply start by making it a matter of daily prayer and ask God, would you send somebody like that into my life? 
That's great advice. You know what? Because I've done that in seasons and it's amazing um, what happens when you start praying a prayer like that. Yeah. That's great. John, in terms of your personal disciplines and habits and rhythms, you're an early riser. I think you hold the record now for the earliest podcast interview, 170 some odd episodes in. Uh, It's 6 a.m. your time when we started this, which is awesome. Uh, You're an early riser. What are some disciplines, rhythms, and habits that keep you on the road (laughs) at this point in your life and leadership? Uh, I'll mention one real specific one and then one whole arena. Talking about the friendship uh, dynamic, I have a good friend that I have known, gosh, for well over 35 years. We went to grad school together and uh, we have a long, really good friendship. And uh, in this past year, we've started a little habit where each morning, as long as we're available for 10 minutes at 6.50 a.m., we'll call each other up. Hmm. And we talk about what happened yesterday and what do you need prayer for today? And it's just kind of, uh, where's God at work? Uh, how's your heart? And I'm a pee on the Myers-Briggs, so I'm very unstructured and, and spontaneous. And I have a hard time incorporating things into a calendar. So I really didn't know if that would work, but I just love it. We both find mm. ourselves looking forward to that conversation a ton. So that's you know one real small practice, but it's become something now that in the morning, uh, I really look forward to and it's really helpful. That's awesome. Uh, the, 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 so I'd encourage anybody to try that one. The larger arena is over this last year, I've really gotten involved with the 12 steps. Yeah. Uh, I've been intrigued by them for a long time. Uh, one of our kids has been in AA for a little over four years and watching God at work through that has been real striking. And so I actually have begun to uh, go to meetings sometimes as a visitor. You can go to open meetings and then very intensely working through the 12 steps. I am just finishing the 10th and starting on the 11th right now. Uh, and so to learn, there's a whole body of wisdom about how to actually do the steps. How do I surrender my life and will to God? How do you do a fearless and searching moral inventory? How do you make amends? Um, that's been uh, a great gift. Mm, yeah. Well, there's so much we could uh, we could continue to drill down on. And I remember having a longer conversation about even the 12 steps. And I think I, I look forward to what you've learned from that and you sharing that with leaders. John, people are going to want to get in touch with you and they're going to want to find the book. So tell us where we can do that. Uh, I think the book is available at bookstores all over America, yeah. Canada, Barnes & Nobles. You can get it through Amazon. Uh, you can go to johnorperick.com. Oh, that's cool. John, this has been so, so rich. And I want to thank you for uh, the time together today. I have really enjoyed it. And can I just say, God pour out rich blessings on Carrie and God pour out as many blessings on all of us who are experiencing this moment together as we are able to well absorb. Well, thank you so much, John. Like, is that not good for your soul? I mean, man, I just, that was so rich. And I look forward to uh, spending more time with John in the future. We didn't even get to like the church part. So we got to have part two to this conversation. Uh, Man, you heard, if you listen to the intro about the big 5 million download giveaway coming, we are a hair's breadth away from 5 million downloads. 
the clock will turn next week, which also triggers our 5 million download giveaway, the biggest giveaway in the history of this podcast. We're giving away free Starbucks for a week, including some Dunkin' Donuts in the mix for those of you who don't have a Starbucks nearby or don't prefer that. Uh, So we're going to be doing that on my social channels. But the big prize is an extra large big green egg, the best barbecue slash smoker griller in human history. I love mine. I want one of you to win one, and we will share details on how to do that next week. So don't miss next week's episode. That's Tuesday, December 5th, 2017. We're going to show you exactly how to win. And uh, I'm also going to travel with that big green egg and going to hang out with you and your team and build into you. So it's going to be a great, 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 great contest. And honestly, I hope you win. Okay, speaking of next week, we got an incredible guest. We are back with a fresh episode, and we do that every Tuesday. We got a fresh episode dropping every Tuesday. My guest next week is Dave Ferguson from Community Christian outside of Chicago, Illinois, and part of the New Thing Network and so much. Here's an excerpt of my conversation with Dave. I think sometimes we think about longevity instead of legacy. And I think if we thought in terms of legacy... Then we would start going like, oh, well, the best way to leave a legacy. And we know this now as parents, right? right? That I'm not going to live forever, but the best thing I could do is invest in my kids and then maybe eventually grandkids. And, and somehow, and the family, the family metaphor is all throughout scripture, but somehow we've forgotten that, that the best thing we can do is invest in other people and invest in other people and other new churches and let them ex- continue to extend the community instead of saying, oh, how long can we hang on? So that's coming up next week. Hey, there has never been a better reason to subscribe than there is right now, because that way you'll make sure that this is on your phone. You don't forget about it when the contest is over. You're like, ah, I could have won a big green egg. I could have won Starbucks every day. Subscribe. It's for free on Google Play, iTunes, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to be able to uh, help you out starting next week. Some great guests coming up in the future. In the meantime, if you haven't yet checked out the good folks at Lifeway and what they offer at Ministry Grid, go to lifeway.com slash ministrygrid to get started today. And you can even train your first-time guests team for free if you act now. So uh, I can't wait for next Tuesday. I think it's going to be one of the funnest times in podcast history as we give away lots of Starbucks, lots of caffeine, and uh, Big Green Egg, and some time with me to one of you. Thanks so much for listening. I really do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.